There was a band that I loved back in the 90s. They never were particularly big. I'm not going to tell you who they are because it's a little embarrassing in case you do know who they are. But it was one of those CDs that I found and I loved and I wore it out. I just listened to it on repeat over and over. And then I just forgot about them. And I hadn't listened to their music for probably 25, 30 years. And maybe a week or so ago, I was driving down the road and there was someone who was out walking their dog and they were wearing a t-shirt that had this band's logo on it. And I literally stopped my car and I rolled down my window and I shouted, I love them too. Like you, you complete stranger. I don't know anything about you. I haven't listened to the music in 20 years, but there was this, this bond that was built by the fact that they were wearing this shirt. For all I know, they got it at Goodwill. I don't know their name. I didn't know anything about this human other than they were wearing a t-shirt of a band that I loved in the 90s. There's an experience like that with this Bible reading program that we've been doing. We're, we're calling this our scriptural formation journals because we believe that if we expose ourselves to God's word, we're going to be transformed. But one of the surprise bonuses of this whole process has been, I'll be talking to somebody during the week and I'll say something like, or they'll say something like, I, I was just reading in Matthew and I'll be like, whoa, wait a second. I was just reading in Matthew. Are you kidding? And then, of course, I remember, oh, a lot of us are reading in Matthew. In fact, someone who had come to the first service who had just, was just leaving, they said this is just one of the best things that they've, they've ever done. They've just never spent time in the scriptures like this. And not only to spend time in scriptures, but to spend time in scriptures that other people are also reading as well and that are being discussed at disciple groups. And you just can have a common interaction with somebody over the same text. It's just, it's, it's amazing. It's like seeing someone wearing a t-shirt of your old favorite obscure band in public. You just got this instant connection. And, and I, I, I want, you may think that I'm overselling this, but there are two single people who come to our first service that started up a conversation because they were both reading through the book of James. They fell in love and now they're getting married just because of the book of James. As far as you guys know, that's true because you're not here at the first service. <laughs> I do want you to know that if you have not participated in this, you're, you're missing out on an experience of joy and connection with other people in your church family. So if you are caught up, uh, we have read James, Jude, and the first two chapters of Peter this last week. And if you're not caught up, there's no time like the present. We're going to put aside 1 Peter 1 and 2, and we're going to save that for next week, and we're going to talk about James and Jude this morning. And James and Jude are not a relaxing, calming, soothing read. You don't light a candle, have some incense, and just kind of calm yourself down reading James and Jude. James and Jude are more like jumping in the deep end of a cold pool on a cold day. It is very invigorating to read these books because there is, first of all, it's very dense. There's a lot in there, but there's a lot of challenge. There's a lot of personal challenge for us. You have to brace yourself to read James and Jude. These are letters, but they're not designed to be comfortable. They're designed to be challenging. They're not designed to just come up alongside you and just pat you on the head and say, there, there, there. They're designed to kick you in the pants. And, and let me give you an example of this. Think about just the very first chapter of the book of James. If you haven't read it, here's a quick recap. From the beginning, he says things like difficulty, hardship in your life, clearly understood is a cause for joy. That's a lot. Wealth, realistically seen, is a cause for sorrow. It's a reason to be sorrowful if you look at wealth the way James is presenting it. A cause for sorrow. 
Boy, that just changes the perspective. Uh, People who doubt lead completely insecure and unstable lives. Let me pause here for a second because some of you are like, well, I struggle with some doubt. He's not talking about sometimes I have questions and sometimes I wonder. He's talking about people who cannot decide that this is what my life is about. He's saying if you are that way with God, you're that way with everything. That's, a, that's intense. This is chapter one. He says, you have no one to blame for your sin but yourself. Don't go walking around trying to say, well, you know, it was my upbringing. Maybe that contributed to it, but sin is your own fault. You are dragged away by your own lusts and enticed. You cannot blame God, James says. Uh, This is my favorite part of James 1. Sin is not safe because it's small. We think like, oh, it's just a little sin. It's just a little white lie. No big deal. James is like, no, no, no. That is not safe sin. In fact, it's kind of cool because in this, he actually uses the analogy of pregnancy. And he says, small sins are like a little sin baby, but they grow up to be sin adults and they'll destroy your life. That's what he's talking about. If you listen without acting, you are lying to yourself. And then finally, he says, you're not a good person if you don't watch your words. That's a lot. That's just the first chapter. These are not like daily positive affirmations. James is just like, bam, hit after hit after hit. That's why you have to brace yourself to read it. It's not just like, oh, come, I'm just going to get a little comfort and peace from God's word. It's like challenge. You can see why James is, is a big deal. And Jude, we haven't even got to Jude. This is Jude's starting thesis. Check this out. He says in verse three, dear friends, he's got some pleasantries in one and two. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend or fight for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. You have to fight for this faith for certain individuals um, whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. These are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. Whoa, that's intense. So let's talk about these books real quickly. Just, just a couple basics. James is the, the English version of the Hebrew name Jacob or Jacob. And we call it James because we're English speakers. But it's, his name was Jacob, and that's how people would have known him. Jude is actually the English version of the Hebrew name Judah or Judas. And you can see why they went with Jude instead of Judas. James and Jude are likely brothers, younger brothers of Jesus. Now that's kind of startling because some people are like, wait a second. I thought Jesus was an only child. <laughs> what are you talking about? No, he had, he had siblings. And we're introduced to them in the book of Matthew chapter 13. But they're likely younger brothers. And one of the reasons, there's other reasons for this, but one of the reasons we think they might be younger brothers is that they just introduced themselves with a single name and no other description. It's not like Paul the apostle. It's just like, hey, I'm James. And people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, the James. And then Jude actually introduces himself as the brother of James. But there's not a lot of people that can get away with introducing themselves by one name. You know, it's a short list. I don't know, like Bono, uh, Cher, um, Prince. Nobody's like, nobody's saying, have you heard that Prince song? Nobody's like, Prince who? You know, it's just like, it's just the one, it's just the one name. It's just James. It's just Jude or Judah. In fact, technically, this, this English word is supposed to be pronounced Judah. We, we pronounce it J- Jude, but it's supposed to be pronounced uh, Judah. 
So they're likely the brothers of Jesus. And at first, they're a little skeptical about their older brother being the Messiah. They're, they're a little unsure because when you read in scripture, it seems like they're hesitant to believe this idea. And then by the time they write these letters, they're saying things like, I am a servant of the most high Lord Jesus Christ. And that's kind of startling. I mean, something shifted in the subsequent years between when they were skeptical and when they thought, oh, Jesus is the guy. Something changed. These are letters, James and Jude are letters, and they're written to a Hebrew audience. James actually comes out and says it. I'm writing to the 12 tribes. Judah assumes that he's writing to people with a background in Hebrew literature. But our reading plan that we're going through is grouping the Hebrew-flavored writings together. So these are writings that have an assumption that people understand some of the Hebrew Bible literature. And we've grouped them together. So it's not Matthew, then to Mark. It's Matthew, James, Jude, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Hebrews. Those are all the writings of the New Testament that kind of have this same background together. James and Jude are not messing around. You know how most parents kind of come in a set? I, I mean, I, there's two, but I mean, like one salt, one's pepper, you know what I mean? There, there's parents who have personality differences that complement one another. So, for, for example, in some parent groupings, you have a parent who's sympathetic and tenderhearted and compassionate, and then you have the dad, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I realize that's a little stereotypical. It's not always, it doesn't always work <laughs> that way. But you have one parent, when they see their child get bad news from school or somebody did something mean or said something mean or they scraped their knee, you have one parent who's like, oh, poor little baby, you know, my poor little darling child, you know, I'm so sorry, let me make you your favorite meal, um, let me go call that, call the principal or call the teacher, call those parents, and the other parent is like, stop crying, seriously, get over it, you're fine, just walk it off. James and Jude are both walk it off kind of parents. They're very intense. They're very direct. They're very forward in what they say. There's not a lot of hand-holding in these letters. Let me give you just a brief, quick little example. In, in, in any of these letters that we have compiled that make up the New Testament, most of them were designed to be read to a group of Christians that had gathered to worship together. Now, what they would do is they would gather together pre-dawn, because Sunday wasn't a day off. Sunday's a day, being a day off is kind of a modern thing. It's kind of going by the wayside again, but it's a, it's a relatively modern thing. So they would wake up 4 or 5 a.m., gather together before they went to their other jobs. You talk about resiliency and discipleship. So they would gather together, and of course they would share and discuss, and somebody might have a song, somebody might have something that the Spirit had been working on them. But every once in a while, they would receive another letter from an author like Paul the Apostle, or Peter, or James, or others. Every once in a while. And these letters were designed to be read out loud in the room to everybody. That's kind of interesting to think. You imagine everybody's gathered, it's still dark outside, and you know, they're all kind of brushing the sleep from their eyes, and they're settling in and sitting down, and one of the elders said, oh, by the way, we've got a brand new letter from, from Paul. And Paul, when he writes, he normally starts off really nice. He's like, hey, dear beloved, you guys are doing great. I've heard lots of good things about you. Everything sounds so good. Your reputation precedes you. And he'll do like chapter of like, oh, just think about our wonderful salvation that we share in Jesus and the blessings and all that. In fact, in like the book of Ephesians, there's three chapters of that preamble. And then chapter four, he's like, there are a few things you need to work on. You need to adjust. And then he ends by saying, but you're awesome. Remember, God's got grace for you. Paul does say some harsh things, but that's a lot of how he says it. Listen, listen to what James says to start off his letter. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. 
You know what that, that's Greek for walk it off. <laughs> that's what he's talking about. He's trying to give them a larger perspective on life, but he's not messing around. That is verse two in the book of James. How about, uh, how about Jude? This is, this is unbelievable. Jude's just a short little book, um, but we don't really dig into it very often. They are like waterless clouds. They're swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. That's my favorite part, the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Hey, Jude. <laughs> Don't make it sad, man. Been waiting to figure out where I could slip that in. But you can imagine, like, when people are reading this, they're gathered together. They're literally gathered together. And he's saying, there are people like this among you. And you can imagine the people are looking at one another like, is that you? Is that him? What was he talking about? Man, this is a guy who's very practiced in the art of a literary insult. James and Jude are like that friend who is honest enough to tell you that your fly is unzipped or you have something in your teeth. You know what I mean? You need those kinds of friends. The problem is that they're crazy enough that they'll tell you that from across the room in a crowded room full of people. What James and Jude do is they shine this intense spotlight on our lives. And the problem is, as we read it, we don't always like what is exposed by that light. Let's talk about that spotlight just for a second. Years ago, one, we were doing one of our mission trip garage sales. Everybody gets all the stuff that they've collected over the last 12 months and get read, gets rid of it again. And we were doing it at our house in our driveway. And there was a lot of traffic just driving by. You know, people do those drive-by shopping where they're just looking out the window to see if there's anything that looks like they want. And then they, if they don't see anything they want, they keep going. Well, I have a theory that a crowd attracts a crowd. And so I had, I had told Taya, who was probably 11 or 12 at the time, I said, Hey, Taya, why don't you go out in the, uh, in the in driveway and pretend that you're shopping? You know, and I thought, maybe that would entice somebody to come in. You know, kind of silly. I get that. But Taya, very good child, first child, says, no. What? She said, no, I don't think it's okay for me to lie with my actions. <laughs> and you know what? She's right. That's true. It's not okay. You know, maybe it's not a huge deal, but it's not okay. And I was like, <gasps> bright moral spotlight. I love that moral clarity that she has. I love that. My youngest child, uh, this has been a few years ago, we were walking down the street and there was a homeless man, had a sign that said, please give me money. And he said, dad, let's give them some money. And so me trying to be a good dad, not wanting to get into the nuances of this will really help him, wanting to encourage generosity in my child said, sure, I'm digging in my pockets and this is very unusual for me. And I, I didn't have a dollar or two. All I had was a $20 bill. And I thought, man, I really want to teach him a lesson about generosity without having to be generous. That would be great if there was a way that I could do this without, but cheaply. So I literally pulled this out and I'm like, oh, man, I'm sorry, buddy. All I have is a 20. And he goes, that's okay, and grabbed it and ran it and put it in this guy's little bucket. And you know what? That was okay. He's right. Bright moral clarity. I love that. You know where they get that brutal moral clarity? Most of you just looked at my wife because you're like, yes, that sounds like Kareem. That did not come from you, Patrick. And you're right. Kareem, who happened to have memorized the book of James when she was in high school. Interesting. Interesting how the word of God can form and shape you for a long time to come. Bright moral clarity.
James and Jude are shining a bright moral spotlight on our lives. And, and, and when you think about your life, I mean, I, there, there may be some places in your life where you're feeling like, yeah, I've got a little bit of a moral dilemma. I'm just not sure what to do. But typically, moral dilemmas don't happen because we don't know what is right or wrong. That's not why we experience moral dilemmas. Moral dilemmas are a failure of moral clarity. Meaning that there is a moment in which there's some sort of fog of confusion that's settled in and we've forgotten which way leads us down the path of righteousness. I, I, want, I want to give you some definitive, morally clear statements in James because James and Jude are like bright high beams in life. Check this out. James chapter 1, verse 26. We referenced this earlier. Anyone who thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue deceives his heart. Oof. James 2.26, faith apart from works is dead. He's not saying, you know, if you don't have works in your life and you got faith, but you need to work a little bit on that. Try to inch your way forward. And he's like, it's dead. Your faith is dead. James 3.10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Have you ever been listening to worship music in the car and you're going along singing, I don't know, salvation belongs to our God. And then somebody cuts you off like, you idiot. Like blessings and cursings in the same sentence sometimes happen. Come from me. These things ought not be so. Listen to this. James 4, 4. You adulterous people. Imagine if I said that. Imagine if I was looking at you in the eyes and I was like, there are some waterless clouds. You're foaming up the sea of your own shame. You adulterous people. I would get some emails saying, hey, my child was there. My wife was offended. That is direct. That is bright moral clarity. He says, friendship, a desire to be loved by the world and base our actions on the affirmation that we can get from people who don't share our values is enmity with God. Whew. That is intense stuff. That's just a sampling. Behind every one of those verses is an excuse that is getting demolished. Is some excuse for a lack of progress, a lack of growth in a person's life that is getting taken to the woodshed. James says those excuses do not belong here in your life of faith. Let me give you a quick example of how this plays out in real time. It could be, you could use any virtue to talk about this. For, for example, maybe we're thinking about generosity. Maybe we know God has been working on our heart about generosity. And maybe we even pray, God, what should I do with my money? What should I do with my finances? And we hear God say, be generous. Bright moral clarity, be generous. Well, what happens is the fog comes rolling in. Okay, God, I hear you, but the bills are high this month. You know, things aren't looking good. Credit card is a little high. There's an interest rate on that that's not great. So in light of that, what should I do with my money? And God says, be generous. Okay, God, I hear you. I get that. I understand that. But listen, there is this person who could use a little generosity, but I have some suspicions that they've made some poor financial decisions a few years ago, and I kind of think they got themselves into this mess. What does God say? Be generous. Okay, God, right, 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 right. I hear you. But if you recall, there's that verse in the good book that says, you help those who help themselves. So what does God say? That was Benjamin Franklin. I say, be generous. 
See, it's not that there's a difficulty in understanding what is right in a given situation. It's that we allow all these other things that have no bearing on what is right or wrong to fog our choices, to fog our decisions. This is like 99% of parenting, right? Parents, you're really only trying to teach your children like five things, maybe, right? Maybe it's different for you, or maybe you have some adjustments to this. But parents, I mean, we're, we're talking about maybe five things. Be kind to everyone. Work hard. Obey your mom and dad. Respect yourself. And put God first. That's generally speaking, right? And parenting is just reminding your children to continue to do that in constantly shifting situations. That's what parenting is. Hey, honey, we're not going to do that thing with those friends because that's taking place on Sunday morning and we are going to go to church. Hey, honey, I know that classmate said something incredibly rude. I know that teacher was unfair, but you still have to be kind to them. Hey, honey, we're not going to go to that place because you need to respect yourself. And those people are not making choices to respect themselves. That's all parenting is, is just applying the same moral clarity in a variety of situations. That's all we're doing over and over again. Parenting isn't complex because those five things don't change. It's complex because the landscape keeps shifting. The fog keeps rolling in. The moral clarity of the culture around us keeps changing. And things that were very brightly morally clear and nobody would get upset at you for believing them or thinking them. Now, if people discover you think those things, they accuse you of being immoral. The landscape shifts. And what James and Jude are calling us to is saying, you need to read. Remain strong and firm and clear because what is right doesn't change. You should not try to sum up an entire letter or book of the Bible in one sentence because it, it may give you the impression that you get something that you don't actually get. But if you could sum it up, James is saying something like this. He's saying, refuse to allow shifting circumstances to cloud what is certain. Refuse to allow shifting circumstances to cloud what is certain. If you could sum up Jude in one sentence, which you can't, but if you could, he would say, you need to keep contending, fighting for what is true over what is trending. Fight for what is true over what is trending. If you've read James and Jude this week and you didn't feel a stirring in your conscience, that is a problem. James would say, you're deceiving yourselves. He would say there's something wrong with your conscience if you are exposing yourself to the Word of God and you're not registering that there's elements of your heart and your life that need to be transformed. James says this himself in James chapter 1 verse 22 through 24. This is a famous passage. You're familiar with it. He says, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So if we came to church and we're like, ah, oh, man, that was a convicting sermon. And then we walked out of here saying, okay, yeah, it's great. And I'm just going to continue doing what I'm going to do the rest of the week. Then we've missed the point. He's saying a person who does that is like someone who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Natural face. It's the Greek word Genesis face. It's like someone who looks at his original face. So the face that you woke up with. Now, maybe there's a few people who can do this, but I'm not one of them. The face that you woke up with, you can look in a mirror and you can think, there is absolutely nothing I would change. 
And what he's saying is, is if you can do that, something might be wrong with you. Because everybody has hair out of place or something on their face or something stuck in their teeth. If you can look at that bright moral clarity that James and Jude are offering and you think, there's nothing I need to do. There's nothing I need to fix. There's nothing I need to change. Then something is wrong with you. You are deceiving yourselves. So I think what we need to do is we need to sit with some uncomfortably bright questions. I asked you last week when we were looking through the second half of the book of Matthew, I said, I asked this question, and it's, it's been sitting with me a lot this week, and the question was this, would someone that believes in the kingdom of heaven and the authority of King Jesus make the same decisions that you make? That's a tough question, because I don't think the answer is always yes for me. And so as we've read James, it's likely that you have stuff that you need to deal with. Maybe it's sin or bitterness or compromise or apathy or fear or just something in your life that you need to repent of. And you need someone like James or Jude to be direct with you, to say, listen, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to change. This is what's going on in your life. So, inspired by these two letters, I went through our church directory this week, and uh, I wrote down, by each family name, the thing I think most needs to change in their life. No, I'm not going to do that. You know I'm not going to do that, right? I'm not a younger brother of Jesus. I don't have the opportunity to have one of my letters actually codified in Scripture for all time. But I'm guessing that when I say something like, hey, I'm going to write down the thing that most needs to change in your life, for a lot of you, something bubbled to the surface. And you thought, mm, yeah, I wonder if he's going to say that. Because moral clarity is not that you don't know what needs to change. Moral clarity is cutting through that fog and saying, I am going to do this. I'm going to live this way. So let's ask yourself another tough question this week. If there was someone who had the moral clarity and was as brutally honest as James and Jude are, what would they say about your life? What would this letter contain? What would someone with the moral clarity and the brutal honesty of James and Jude say about your life? We tend to read passages like this or even hear sermons and think, oh, I'm such a miserable failure. I'm awful. And the thing we need to know is that James and Jude call us out like they do, not because they think we shouldn't be involved in church and God shouldn't love us, but because they see so much more potential in us. God loves us. He disciplines those he calls children. And it's so valuable that we remember that. So if you felt convicted, well, you should remember that that conviction points to God's love for you. And you should remember that in God's love for you, there is deep reservoirs of mercy and grace.